well, amongst the, the many uh, very critical crises that we have experienced over the past year, particularly in, in the year of 2020, you may have missed about, out on one of them. Uh, you may have missed out on the great shortage of McDonald's signature item, uh, the hamburger patty. Did you know that um, over last year, in addition to there being supply line complications due to shutdown issues in different parts of the country, there was a promotion uh, where McDonald's partnered with a singer. I don't know his music, but it's a rapper. His name is Travis Scott. I don't know if I should condone his music or not. I'm thinking probably not. Um, but the partnership with McDonald's, he had his own signature meal deal. Uh, that meal deal consisted of a quarter pounder with cheese and barbecue sauce on the bun, um, fries, and a Sprite. That was his meal, and that meal became so popular uh, that it created a crisis. And there were franchises around the country who were running out of burgers. Now, now you'll be very relieved to know that the patty pandemic has ended. Um, they have been able to resolve all of the issues with, and, and, and you have no fear, you won't have to go to the drive-in and tell you, you know, hear them tell you that, I'm sorry, all we have is a fish filet, you know, because that is like the worst case scenario at McDonald's. Um, McDonald's is about hamburgers. And what hamburgers are to McDonald's, love is to the church. Uh, love is the signature trademark of God's people and his spiritual community. And so the question is, what happens when love is not there? Uh, that's, that's a challenge we're going to work through and look at this morning. We are in the, the second week of a new series. Uh, the series is called Direct Message. We started it last week, and we're looking through different letters that are written by Jesus to different churches, and it's in the book of uh, Revelation, and we started off last week, um, the, 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 the message title was Caller ID, and we just looked through the first chapter of Revelation and saw that Revelation is all about revealing Jesus and, and how more than anything else that we need to see Jesus for who he is. And, um, and so today, we are going to move from that caller ID to look at the first, um, the first letter that's written. It's written to a loveless church, um, in the, in, it's the church in Ephesus. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter 2, and we're looking at, uh, at verse uh, 1 to 7. I'm just going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll go back and unpack it together. It says this, um, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent." 
Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Okay, that's the first letter, a letter written by Jesus to the church in Ephesians. Um, and I just want to um, just show you this book uh, for some of you who'd like to do supplemental study. Um, I've actually not read this book, but it's written by Francis Chan. It's called Letters to the Church. And um, I'm going to go out on a limb and commend it to you because I've, re I've read almost everything else by Francis Chan, and I've yet to read a book of his that I didn't find incredibly edifying. Um, insight into pastoral study and preaching and stuff. I can't read a book like this before I'm working through a series like this because I'll end up preaching the book. Um, for those of you who do any kind of preaching, you know what that's like. Um, but I, I might just read that one chapter after I get home this afternoon. We'll see. Um, but uh, yeah, Francis Chan, Letters to the Church. And so we're going to look through this letter, unpack it together. And, and the first thing I want to do is take just a quick uh, pit stop at the address line. You know, that's the part we sort of just breeze through and, and get to the content, but there's something significant here because we're told uh, both who the message is written to and who it's written from. And each of these seven letters gets addressed in a very interesting way. It says, to the angel of a particular church. And, and this kind of gets to the heart of what we talked about last week about people's attitudes towards revelation. It's so confusing. And this is one of, a, it's, it's like a perfect example of that. What is that all about? How do you write to an angel? Um, so, uh, so, so the Greek word for angel, it literally means messenger. And so it, it's possible that this is referring to a human messenger. Um, however, what I would say is I do believe that it's pointing to an actual heavenly messenger and, um, you know, revelation in general, it, it opens up the lid on spiritual realities that are all around us, but just out of sight. And, and angels, uh, angels are supernatural servants who, who do God's work. They fall into that category. And so I may be mistaken, but since angels show up all over the, the, the book of Revelation, I tend to doubt that this this would be the exception. Uh, the point being this is that our existences are just so much bigger than what we can just see and hear and touch and taste and smell our five senses, right? We never want to reduce reality to just what we encounter through our five senses. Uh, life, it's not any less than that, but it is so much more than that. And, and there are realities that don't even show up on our radar screen sometime. And, and angels somehow figure into that. We, we don't know exactly how. I can't tell you. The Bible doesn't speak as much as I would like to, 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 to learn and know about that. So it's something to be more aware of and, um, you know, don't get obsessive over it. Um, but we could ask the question, so does, does that mean, is there an angel assigned to Lakeview Community Church? Right? Or, or maybe, is there an angel that's covering the church over Carmel? I don't know, but it's possible. I think it is possible. 
Uh, either way, the, the goal is to make sure that this message got delivered to the people who were within those churches, that church in Ephesus. And it's addressed to them, uh, but the message is relevant both to them and to us and to all of God's people everywhere in all times. So it also identifies uh, the writer of the letter. And this part is significant. It's highly personal. And it takes us back uh, to that overwhelming vision uh, of Jesus that John saw. We looked at it last week, if you remember. The exalted Jesus who, when John saw him and saw Jesus for who he really is, right? You remember what happened? It completely wrecked him. If you remember, he fell flat on his face as though dead, right? And so what we're going to find out um, is that for each of these seven churches that, John, that Jesus is writing to, there is a specific aspect of that vision of, of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ that, that he reveals, that he highlights. And so the idea is that, that just like what happened to John, part of Jesus's plan is to wreck you, and to wreck me, to wreck us, to upend us in the very best way possible by, by revealing himself, um, by, by putting an aspect of who he is front and center in our lives, up front in a razor-sharp focus. Maybe it's an aspect of who Jesus is that we've overlooked, that we've lost sight of, and as we lock on to that, just need to prepare you, we as well may find ourselves laid out on the ground as well, overwhelmed as we see Jesus for who he is. In, in this case, here's what it says. It says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, again, that in classic Revelation fashion sounds kind of cryptic. Except not for you guys, I am hoping, right? Because you guys who were tuned in last week, you remember, right, at the very end of chapter one, the very last thing that Jesus explained to John was what the seven stars were. Do you remember? The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and then the seven lampstands, do you remember what they are? They, they are the seven churches, right? So if you remember that, Good job. You are on it. I am glad you are keeping your thinking caps on when you go to church. And, and you may also remember uh, that the number seven we talked about last week, that in Revelation, uh, that number represents something. It, it represents fullness and completion. So this is talking about all of the churches and all of the angels of all of the churches. And so... Uh, and so Jesus puts that front and center for those people in Ephesus. That was, that was something they needed to know, that Jesus is present in his church. He is right there with them. He's not far off, away, distant, and removed. And also that he's got things in the grip of his hand, in the grip of his strong hands. The, the Greek word for hold means to seize. And what that's getting across is that Jesus doesn't have some kind of, you know, dead fish handshake kind of grip on things, right? His grip is strong and it's solid and his grip will not slip, all right? And, 
And maybe like the Ephesians, maybe that's something that we need to hear today as well. And, and maybe as we comprehend more of, of how strong and tight and secure his grip is, maybe we can loosen up just a little bit and not go get so stressed out about so many things and get bent out of shape all the time. You know, I, I got to tell you, I am so glad that the fate of God's church does not rest in my hands. Because truth be told, my grip slips. I am honestly not that strong. I am not strong enough. And if it were in my hands, or if it were in your hands, I honestly, I don't know how I'd be able to fall asleep at night. Um, But our Savior's grip never slips. It hasn't slipped in over 2,000 years through the rise and the fall of nations and empires and wars and revolutions and persecutions and scandals, the church is still going. And, and right now, in, in the middle of pandemics and, and political polarization and social upheaval, whatever it is, understand this. Jesus is still holding his church in his hands And his grip is not about to slip. Maybe you need to hear that. So let's move on from the address line to the actual content. In each of these letters, we're going to see that wherever possible, Jesus always starts out with commendation. He is eager to affirm anywhere and anything. And then after a commendation, he moves on to to an area of correction. So he says, hey, guys, this is where you as a church, you're hitting it out of the park. And then here is where you guys are blowing it. And then he goes on and says, here's what to do about it. So in this letter, he actually serves up what uh, I would call like a commendation sandwich, right? He, he, he Commendation, correction. And after the correction's over, he follows it up with even more commendation. And so the point being that there was so much in this church that they were doing right. But in the process of all of their doing, they had walked away from the one thing that was most important, and that made the whole thing wrong. So Jesus tells them, first of all, I know your works, I know your toil, I know your patient endurance. Jesus sees and he knows the hard work that goes on in his church. And that's something I am very glad about because so much of ministry takes place off the radar screen, out of view. And and there are are so many people who are never going to know the hours that so many people invest, the willingness of people to, to jump into the messes of church ministry, roll up their sleeves, and get their hands dirty, and do the work of ministry. There are so many here at this church at Lakeview who do that. Toil. Toil is what he calls it. And man, I am thankful for each and every one of you, but more than that, Jesus knows. He knows. The pastor, Rick McKinley, he described years ago, I heard him describe church ministry as a beautiful mess. And to this day, that remains the most accurate description of church I've ever come across. Because doing church God's way, it just requires heavy doses of patient endurance, 
You know, there's just, there's just not a whole lot of quick fixes for the things that church um, is about. You know, pouring into people's lives, help them grow, follow Jesus. That is, that's just not a quick fix. It's not a sprint. It's a, it's a marathon. It's, it's filled with ups and with downs and with frustrations and disappointments. And when it comes to church, you just realize that's the way it is. That is par for the course. And to those who are invested in it, please remember that your labor, it's never lost on your Lord. He knows. Jesus specifically commends the commitment that this church had to teaching truth and, and how careful they were to guard the gate. So in this church in Ephesus, not any, just anyone was going to walk through those doors and expect to be handed a platform to teach whatever they thought they wanted to teach. These guys did their homework. They tested teachers and they discerned, here's the real guys and here's the phonies. And when false teachers came knocking on their door and they did that back then and make no mistake, they still do that today. These guys did that hard work. They made those hard calls and they sent the phonies packing. You're not going to get in here. Jesus sees the less glamorous but highly essential tasks of ministry. Uh, it was actually in this church, not this church, but the church of Ephesus that Jesus is writing to. Back in Acts 20, the apostle Paul was saying goodbye uh, to the elders. And the last words to them, he, he, warned, he warned them, guys, be on guard against these fierce wolves. They're coming after I leave. They're coming to devour the flock that even from within their own ranks, he said, people would, would, would rise up and start twisting the truth the point is that the message matters. The message matters. Eternity is at stake. And if the gospel message gets hijacked, it does more than just blow the church up. It, it leads people to hell. And that's a problem. The Ephesians got that. They understood that their guard was up. And Jesus is grateful. Thank you that you are not just a do whatever you want to do, church. And yeah, we want to affirm everybody who has a message that says anything. Whatever works for you, whatever's true for you, that wasn't, that wasn't this church. And in an anything-goes culture, the one that we live in today, that remains an essential but a very challenging task. Okay, so, so far, this church sounds pretty good, right? This church is a church that sounds like it's getting it all right. They're, they're committed, they're invested, they're doing the hard work, and that's what makes the next part so shocking. Because despite all the good they're doing, this church, according to Jesus, is in a state of emergency, Listen to the correction he gives him. He says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. That's, that's shocking, isn't it? And, and what makes it so sobering is the reality that if, if that church that was doing so many right things could still be completely wrong, then that could happen to any church. What happened to them can happen to us as well. We're not exempt. The, the love was gone. 
And like the earth, wind, and fire song goes, that after the love is gone, what used to be right is wrong. And Jesus says, all those other things that you're doing, they just, they don't matter anymore. Love is the main thing. And once that's gone, once that's not there, none of the other things matter anymore. So think of it like skipping that main ingredient in a recipe, right? You, you can leave out maybe a couple of toppings, the spices you put on afterwards, um, some salt or maybe some seasoning. But if you're making pancakes and, and if you leave out one of the main ingredients, like for instance, uh, baking powder or you in its place put baking soda, and, and yes, in case you're wondering, I've done that. Um, I had the experience of doing that. And speaking from experience, it doesn't matter how good all of the other ingredients are, what kind of quality you use, the whole batch is going to end up in the garbage and you're going to be left with some hangry people in the house, right? Because they're smelling it, smells good, and they're not able to eat it. Uh, Love is the main ingredient, And once the love is gone from a church, it's all gone. And and don't get the wrong idea. This is not contrasting love with the good works they've been doing. Like stop doing those things and start doing this instead. It's not an either or. It's, It's a both and. It's love motivating and fueling the good works instead of substituting one for the other. So that's where they're at, they are in a a crisis situation, a state of emergency, and you stop and say, how did that happen? How did they get there? Jesus tells them. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. And he's crystal clear that the situation they find themselves in is the byproduct of their own actions. In other words, he's making the point that love didn't leave them. They left love. The point is that love is not some kind of like the lost dog that ran away. All right? It's not like they looked around and they said, hey, dude, like, what happened to the love? Oh, man, I, I'm not sure. I know it was here a few minutes ago. Love, where'd you go? I, I'm sure hoping the love comes back. You know, that, that would... That would put them in a more passive, almost spectator kind of role. Jesus doesn't let that happen. He wants them, he wants us to understand and come to terms with the reality that when the love is missing, it's not because love ran away from us or it got away from us. It's because we ran away from love. It says, you abandoned the love you had at first. See, the idea is that there came a point in time when you pulled the car over to the side of the road, you got out of the driver's side door, you walked over to the passenger side, you opened the door, and you kicked love out on the curb. And then you shut the door, you went back over, closed your door, put the car in drive, and drove off. See ya. It's been a great ride with you, love, but we're done. I have no use for you anymore. That's that's the image that comes to mind. And understand that when that happens, that vacant seat, it doesn't stay empty long. 
it gets replaced. It gets filled by something else and something else will start fueling our lives and motivating our actions. You know, maybe, maybe in this church in, in Ephesus, they started defining themselves by a sense of duty because they were a busy church. They, they weren't sitting around, you know, we're the serious ones. You know, we're not like those, those poser Christians over there that never do anything. We're doing the Lord's work. It's not about the love. It's about the work of ministry. Or, or maybe, maybe they started defining themselves as we are the heretic hunter church, right? And church became all about sniffing out false teachers, It's not about loving God and loving his people. It's about slicing and dicing doctrine. Or or maybe it's about having an enemy to oppose or a battle to fight, right? We're always looking for someone to set off against. And, and, And those people, they're the ones, they're the problems. You know, my sights are locked on on the people that I disagree with for whatever reason. There's a lot of that going around in the church today. Or maybe they just got fed up and just frustrated with dealing with the messes that are a part of church, that are a part of dealing with people's lives, and they just shut down love altogether. And they just turned it into going through the motions. Let's just keep on doing what we've always done. Whatever it was, the point is that the love didn't leave them. Love got left and it got replaced with something else. And when that happens in our lives and in our churches, Jesus says, we're in a state of emergency. This is not some little deal. This is flashing red lights, sirens going off. And the question is, what is this love that they, that they left, the, this love that they had at first? Is it, is it love for God? Is it love for his people? It's both. It's not an either or, it's a both and because they both work together. Loving God leads to loving others. And ultimately, the love that we have at first is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's love from him and it's love directed to him. And what that means is that it was, it was Christ that they had kicked out to the curb. They left the Lord behind, and they forsook their first love. And here's the scary thing. Church went on. Ministry went on without him, without Jesus, without love. And it's scary. It's sobering to me and scary how easily we can shift from loving Jesus to just doing stuff. And when that's where we find ourselves, Jesus not only calls it out, which he does, but he also shows us how to course correct, how to get from where we are and get our lives back on track. And he calls them um, to three very specific steps. The first one he calls them to do is to realize. He says, remember from where you have fallen. Um, Stop and see. There is this gap here. There is this gap between where you are now compared to where you used to be. And he calls that gap a fall. The height from which you have fallen. That height from from compassion to callousness 
point being that when you really take the time and stop to look, you'll see that it's, it's a deep drop. You know, um, our tendency, if you're anything like me, if I trip up, if I fall to the ground, I, I get up and, you know, I just kind of dust myself off and people come around and say, hey, are you okay? It doesn't matter. I could be bleeding. I may have a broken leg. At one time I had a broken neck. And my response was, I'm okay. Um, I've got this. I'm fine. I just lost my step. It's not that big a deal. Everyone else could be telling me, no, you need attention. You've got to do something. You've got to take care of yourself. Uh, but, but we tend to dismiss it. Jesus is saying, don't, don't do that. Look, look at the situation. It's, it's more urgent than you might think. Take a time out. See what you're doing and look at where you're at. Is this really the place you want to be? Maybe that means like, listen to the words that are coming out of your mouth. The thoughts that are coming out of your head. The, the lack of love in your life that it's exhibiting. And the way that up to now we've just been justifying it all. Coming up with excuses and rationalizations. And once we just stop and look and see where we're at, we start to see more clearly that that, that we sober up, really, to the reality that, hey, I am at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I took a hard fall. I have dropped way down, and I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. So, so realizes the first step, and that leads to the second step. The second step he tells them to is repent. Repent. That, that is an action word. It's a word that's found all throughout Scripture. Um, Repent isn't so much a feeling word, even though there often are feelings associated with it. It's not about feeling sorry for something. It's, it's about turning around. So if my life is a car and I find out that I am driving on the wrong side of the road, you know, if I'm driving in the wrong direction down a highway, then repentance just basically means I put on the brakes, I do a 180, and I start driving the right direction again. And that involves some kind of decisive moment that we just say, no more. I can't do this anymore. Love is going to take first place from this point forward. Whatever I do, I'm resolving through the grace of God, the empowering grace of God to, to live in love. No more excuses. No more rationalizations. Because the reality is there's too much at stake. Jesus actually warns this church, if you refuse to repent, if you keep on going down this road and don't turn around, this is kind of crazy. He says, I am personally going to come. You know, Revelation, we talk, this is about Jesus' return. This is this first time he's returning. He says, I will come. Um, it's not going to be the rapture. It's not going to be the second coming. I'm coming to shut your church down. He says, I will come to remove your lampstand from its place. I'm closing your church. That's, that's crazy. That's sobering. You know, can you imagine telling that story? Hey, yeah, our church got shut down. Yeah, what was it? Was it, was it those, those evil politicians, the ones who are in power? Was it the government? No. Well, was it the forces of Satan? Was it the attacks of the enemy? No, it was actually Jesus. Jesus shut down our church. Uh, believe it or not, the pastor um, 
of the church that previously was in this space, uh, the one who passed this building to our church, he used those very words to describe the state of his church. Uh, he said, listen, he said, there is just so much that has gone so wrong and left unaddressed for so long. He said, I, I just think the Lord has removed the lampstand of this church from its place and, and we need to close. Um, that, is, that is sobering. So he calls them uh, to realize, to repent. And the last thing he says is return. He says, do the works that you did at first. Go back to the beginning. Go back to when it all first started, when you first got going. You know, every, every church has a, a starting point. It has a beginning. And, you know, speaking from experience, I can't imagine anyone going through the trouble of starting a church just to have stuff to do, you know, just to keep busy. No one starts a church for hunting down heretics, at least I hope not. Um, I think what compels people to start a church is love. It's birthed out of this desire to, to love the Lord to love others and to help more people embrace the life-changing love of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's what it's about. And you know, over the course of time, things can start getting complicated and messy and convoluted, and we can lose sight of what it's really all about. So go back. This is the invitation, go back. Go back before... You know, we had any buildings, right, before we had any, any construction projects, before we had live streaming issues and technology issues to work through, before we had schedules to fill up and, and databases and budgets and all those necessary things that are secondary to the primary thing. What was it about? It's about a handful of people. Love was right there in the middle of it. It's what it was all about, singing, worshiping, caring, Learning, serving, learning how to love God and, and love each other. That's what it's all about. And again, the point is, it's not about doing less. It's about loving more, keeping love front and center and making all that we do an outwork and expression of love. And so, of course, we can look at that corporately, uh, what it looks like to go back to the beginning. And we also can do that individually in our own spiritual walks. Where did it first begin? And when we do that, it always leads us back to the cross. It leads us back to Jesus, the one who loved us, who laid down his life for us and gave his all out of love for us. And when we go back, what we find out is that's all about him. That, that he is the author of love, he's the, the source of love, and holding on to love is really nothing more than being about staying close to him. That's, that's the place where we're called to belong, to stay, and to remain. The beautiful thing is that our Savior wants that. He invites us to that. He, he longs to be connected in love together with us. He doesn't just care about the things that we do for him, right? He, he cares about you. He cares about me, and he wants to be the object 
of our love. There's something very precious and beautiful about that. Before the Lord ever calls you to do anything for him, he calls you, he calls me to just be with him, to love him, to be loved by him, to open up our hearts to him and to talk to him and hear from him and and let him fill us with his love and then to just live out our lives from that place. That's, That's how it happens. Because on our own, if you're anything like me, you know that the love runs out. It runs out really quick. And so fight for love. Let me, let me end with that. There's this fascinating end to this passage where, where Jesus says uh, to the one who conquers, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of love. And, and we can look, we're going to look at that a little bit more in the weeks to come. But I just love the imagery there of conquering What that means is that there is a battle to fight. If you're fighting a battle and you need a battle to fight, fight for love. Because not ending up where the Ephesians ended up, where we're just doing things for Jesus instead of being with him, that's going to be a battle. It's going to be a battle to remain close to him. And Jesus says, fight that battle. Fight that battle to live out that life of love. Keep it front and center. It is always, every day, worth the fight. Let's pray together. Lord, thank